Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you believe that agricultural innovation is the solution to some of our most important problems, you have found the right show. Very special thank you to those of you who took the time this past week to fill out my listener survey. The insights I've been getting are even more valuable than I expected, so please keep these coming. If you haven't completed that listener survey yet, the link is in the show notes and it will only take you a few minutes. I promise you it's extremely valuable to the future of this show. Today, you get a unique global view into ag tech and agribusiness. We have on the show Greg Myers, who's the chief information officer and chief digital officer of Syngenta based in Switzerland. Most of you, I'm sure, are probably familiar with Syngenta, but you may or may not know they're the largest crop protection company in the world and the third largest seed company in the world. They also provide digital ag platforms to 125 million acres of crop production worldwide. Greg offers his perspective on today's show with a front row seat into the global digitization of agriculture. We talk about the ag tech customer in various countries, Syngenta's acquisition strategy, their role in both digital ag and in soil health, and some interesting ideas worth pondering about the future of agriculture. We start our conversation off, though, really where we left off in last week's episode, in China. So really, I mean, we're a Swiss-based company. I think the one thing that's been really positive is the work that we've been able to do in China, right? So we were able to pull together a number of assets that existed in China, sort of smaller companies that were kind of led by different parts of chemical companies and put them underneath an agricultural company. And I think the amount of progress that we've made really just in the last year or so has been pretty remarkable. And you know, we've been able to do things in China that you couldn't do in maybe in other places. I and mean, we have full track and trace capabilities. I'm sure you've heard about that. And I think you've even had people on your show that have talked about this idea of farm to fork traceability. I mean, that's a, that's a realistic thing. I mean, we have three and a half million QR codes that have been put on fresh fruit and vegetables sitting in supermarkets in China that is helping producers in China supplying to these grocery chains and helping them get premiums on their products. So they move at a speed and, and a level of innovation that's actually quite unique. So I think that you know, they're learning a lot from us because China, its agricultural production is still not where you'd want it to be relative to the Western world. And on the other hand, you know, there's a lot to learn from China and the speed they move and the level of innovation. And, and they're also their willingness to adopt technology. So it's been actually a pretty great mutual um, learning experience on both sides. Could you talk a little bit more about the traceability aspect in China? What about China made it easier to do that there versus other countries? Yeah, well, some of it is the, how the food chain works. So in China, we were working with um, Alibaba, who you may be familiar with as a technology company, but they actually have a grocery chain, very similar to how Amazon has uh, grocery chains in the US. They actually have a, a capability that we were able to work with where the way they supply is the fruit and vegetable producers are producing locally and shipping to local aspects of the grocery store. Right? So you have this chain, imagine the supermarket chain, where they're all sort of buying somewhat locally. And in China, you also have this issue, which is not common in the Western world, where there's still a lot of trust issues that consumers have with food quality, right? You don't know if that strawberry is really red or whether somebody put food coloring in it or these kinds of things. So you don't have the same quality standards that you have in a place like maybe the U.S. or the EU. So I think, first of all, you have this pull from the consumer 
and you have this growing middle class where they're able to afford, you know, more fresh fruits and vegetables and meat and things like that. So there's just this real keen interest in understanding how things were sourced and, and how it worked. So you have a much more sort of flatter food supply chain with a lot less intermediaries. It's a lot less developed. And you also have a consumer that is willing to pay more. And the strawberries and we have pears and we have apples and grapes. And, and these products are being sold at 30, 40 percent more than ones that aren't labeled. So I think what you have in China is a consumer who is willing to pay a premium to be able to see the traceability of the product. I think in other markets, uh, we've seen some of this maybe in coffee, a few other high value cash crops. But in general, you know, you haven't seen consumers really willing to take out their checkbooks and pay a lot more money to be able to see that end to end traceability. Okay, uh, this might feel like a bit of a 180, but something you said there it hits on something I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is the mindset and the identity of the purchaser has to precede the technology. Meaning, in China, they already had a mistrust, you know, for whatever reason, that demanded this traceability that maybe we don't have in the U.S., at least not at a large enough scale to where it's like, I don't trust this and I want to know more before I buy it. I see parallels to that in ag tech right now, where the mindset and the identity of a farmer is not such that they want to go out and pay for new technologies because we're trying to push the tool before there really is either it's a knowledge issue or it's just a it's how they see themselves. If I own my land and I make my money, I've been doing this forever. You know, what's sort of my mindset to just get out there and just gobble up all this technology? Anyway, I know that's that's a lot and it's it's kind of like bridging the gap of maybe where it shouldn't be bridged, but what you know, what what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of the farmers that I speak to are a bit bewildered by the number of people you know who are trying to sell them software for twenty dollars per month that are offering them a five dollar bushel per acre advantage. I, I think the reality of it is that a lot of the growers really have a very specific set of things they're trying to accomplish. And obviously, the nature of the work is there's a really compressed window in with, with which those, those activities have to happen. So if you're trying to create these solutions and they don't fit within that window of work, they, they really have a hard time finding a fit. I mean, a good example, and we've learned some of the lessons the hard way where, you know, other people have this solution as well, but the ability to take satellite images and color code them and provide them down to farmers. And, and that's actually really interesting in the sense of being able to see things that humans can't and being able to look for places where maybe you can direct scout. But you also get an equal amount of feedback that says, I'm not sure what to do with images with these color codes on them because they don't tell me exactly what to do, or where to go. They're just sort of something else I have to pay attention to. So what we found is that you have to actually build products directly in line with the way they work. And obviously, as an agrosciences company, you know, we know an awful lot about genetics, biotechnology, about chemistry, about phenology, crop science, and things like that. And being able to marry up and sort of find this three-legged stool between biology, chemistry, so natural science, and then agronomy and computer science. And these three things really have to work together. I think there's a lot of you know companies that sort of started off coming at it from the technology angle where they have a a really cool you know, piece of technology, and then they, they try to land it, and it's almost like a solution looking for a problem. When I talk to a lot of the ag tech startups, particularly, you know, my first thing that I have to advise them is that, that farmers are neither enterprises, so they don't have you know, teams of procurement and IT people that can cobble this all together for them, and, and nor are they consumers, where they're making these emotional purchases based on the beautiful front-end interface. So you, you really have to 
not only the product market fit has to be right, but it has to fit inside of a real specific problem that they have today. And, and a lot of times the problems they have aren't purely just data in nature, but it's the intersection of data, agronomy, and something going on on their farm, right? Whether that's an issue with fertility or a crop health issue, or it's an issue with pests. And ultimately you have to find the intersection of all these things. And can you give an example of maybe how Syngenta has done that, you know, in, in rolling out a digital product that kind of fits in that intersection? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, today, if you look at uh, a place like Brazil, um, you know, 63% of all the big agricultural companies in Brazil are using, you know, one of our digital tools to help them do crop scouting. So one example that, that we've had a couple of customers tell us is that they've been able to look at being able to track insect pressure. So they'll send their scouts to different parts. And we're talking about, you know, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 acre pieces of land, right? We're not talking about small farms here. So the ability to actually get highly trained scouts and put them in locations where they're going to find things is really challenging. So being able to get those scouts to go out and sort of triangulate in and use software to triangulate either where there's weed pressure, where there's fungus pressure, or where there is insect pressure is allowing them not only to direct their scouts better, but we've also built software that can start building geospatial maps that can tell them if they're going to run the sprayer, for example, how do they do it in multiple passes of spot sprays? Because you can do a, a broadcast pass once, but that might not get what you need because you know, pests themselves tend to migrate and they move around and they, and they change. Even weeds you know, will have seeds that can spread. So what we try to do is we work on software that really tries to help them focus on a problem. And in a place like Latin America, it really is scouting, right? The tropics of Brazil, where if you're a soybean farmer, you're going to see Asian rust every single year. But knowing when it's actually going to happen is a real challenge. So we've built predictive models that use leaf wetness and historical weather and wind to try to help them zone in when and where they have to scout. In a place like Eastern Europe, you have very different you know, sort of set of issues. You might have these mega farms with seven, 8,000 tractors, and they have issues like, how do I stage my combines, my spreaders, my planters, so I can get maximum utilization and, and minimize my fuel costs? In a place like the U.S., right, we have 10,000 farmers using software to help them do crop planning and profitability management, which, you know, on the scale, I mean, we're helping more farmers than anybody else in becoming more profitable. So I think if you go around the world, you'll see very, very different needs depending on the crop segments, depending on the markets, and sort of what the needs of the growers are. And do you need to take those products to market in a certain way? I mean, you've reached you know quite a large scale of adoption in, in very different areas with very different needs. What's the secret sauce for actually you know getting adoption there? Back to kind of the whole thing about if they don't perceive the need for it, it seems like an uphill battle trying to push this stuff. Yeah, this is really one of the, I think the main challenges in ag tech is you see a lot of the innovation happening in the U.S. It's where a lot of the companies tend to start. Maybe you could say um, Argentina, Brazil might be number two. Maybe India is now number three. Israel is number four. But the thing is, is, you know, what works for um, a 12,000 acre wheat farm in Australia doesn't work for a 100,000 soybean farm in Brazil or a one acre farm in India for rice. So what we've done is we've done four acquisitions over the last six years. And what we've done is we've focused on companies that have already had traction. They had a great market fit. They already had customers. And we acquired them not because of the revenue they were getting, but they, we acquired them because they really understood the local market well. And they had good customer relationships. They were adding value to the grower. They were adding value to the grower's advisor, which is, I think, very much an, an often ignored part of this thing is 
farming isn't something that's done alone. They have retailers and distributors and independent agronomists. And so we've really built our software platforms around trying to be able to help the whole ecosystem that helps farmers. And so it's not important to us to try to sell software subscriptions to farmers. And it's not even that important for them to only log into our single pane of glass. What's important is that we can help them actually achieve better outcomes, to achieve more sustainable practices. Uh, and those are things that we try to do. And we'll do them with partners, with retailers, with distributors, with other seed companies. And we're a pretty open player. I think that's really interesting. It, it, there's definitely a contrast there from a lot of what I see of venture capital trying to encourage startups to think bigger. Like, oh, no, you can't just be, you know, for almonds, there's only 7,000, you know, uh, almond growers. You, you have to be for much, much more. But what I'm hearing you saying from an acquisition standpoint is like, if you had somebody who had a footprint and they were really well adopted within that specific niche, that's actually more attractive to you. Yeah, because I think for us, what it does is it, it, it sort of skips over all the wayfinding that you have to do with understanding product market fit, right? So as we, if we found companies, I mean, in Eastern Europe, it was really an issue around asset management. And in places like Latin America, the issues they really have are around being able to manage scouting and, and disease control. And in the U.S., there's a really strong market. If you, if you can help a grower find an edge around profitability, that, that's really important. And when you go to a place like um, Asia, like whether it's Thailand or Vietnam or, or China or India, they have really simple issues like is fall armyworm coming? And if so, when am I going to see it? What do I do about it? So I think for us, the acquisitions have really helped us understand a lot more around how to better service the customer locally, as well as the advisor network that they're in. Now, what we've done is as we've acquired these things, we've tried to import and export features and functionality that we think are relevant across market. So you know, for sure, what's in common is that everyone's looking for an edge and yield profitability. They're all looking for ways to manage, you know, increased uncertainty from climate change, sustainability, things like that. But the nuance and how that's managed is different. So in the U.S., you're far more likely to find kind of owner operators, right, where they're going to be in the cab. You can put a lot of technology in the cab because they're you're really focusing on what's going on in that cab. But in a place like Latin America, the owner operators are kind of companies, right? So They'll have hourly workers operating those machines. So where technology is, who consumes it, and how they consume it does change a lot depending on which market you're in. And do you see yourselves continuing the strategy of, of finding an acquisition target that has product market fit in a strategic area and continuing those acquisitions? Yeah, I think we're always on the hunt for um, you know, new and exciting companies that are solving real-world problems for growers. I think we have reached a point, though, with what we're finding is that we've collected enough assets that we're able to go to a place like Western Europe, you know, and field a product that could really help a grower figure out when to spray their fungicide or, you know, which seed variety they should plant given the seed selectors that we have. So I think we have a lot of the assets that we need already. But, you know, we are excited about a lot of the up and coming companies, particularly around soil health. You know, we think there's been a lot of R&D in what happens above the seedbed. And we think that sort of the next frontier, particularly with the movement and interest in regenerative agriculture, is how do you use technology to really help do more important things below the seedbed? So, you know, that's a, a hot market for us. Uh, and we're looking closely at that right now. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, with the soil health strategy, you know, what types of problems, and, and you don't have to necessarily hone in on one, but, but you know, what types of problems do you see soil health solutions solving from a farmer's point of view? Yeah, well, I think if you look at the last five to seven years, I mean, there's a pretty unmistakable trend towards more regenerative practices, just naturally. I mean, even before, you know, sort of the 
carbon farming sort of movement that's happened that's relatively recent. I, I think what you see is a lot of a lot of farmers that I've talked to, you know, they've had local county programs where they would work with maybe if you're in the U.S., you might have worked with a conservation service that was encouraging things like minimizing tillage or, or cover crops. And they actually have seen you know, good production results. So I think there's already to some degree a, a beneficial loop um, that we see happening in many of these markets. But I think the thing is, is that there's so much variability of what goes on on a given field. And as you, you probably know, I mean, the difference in corn yield or soybean yield or wheat yield could be 50-60% across the same farm. And a lot of that is still not really well understood. And that's because a lot of what goes on isn't as simple as irrigation or drainage or, I mean, some of these things are, are fundamentally what is going on underneath the surface, what's going on with the microbiome of the soil. And it's something that isn't always easily captured in just you know simple soil tests. So I think more research that can go into how do you understand which agricultural practices do what to the soil is really important. And, you know, we spend $2 billion a year in R&D. And in that crop protection world, more and more of our research is going to not just the efficacy of controlling a pest, but also what are the other things that happen, right? How does that chemical impact the microbiome? How does it affect pollinators? And so increasingly, we're starting to promote and put forward product innovations that are really controlling for things more than just pest control or just average yield. I mean, the same thing even in the seed business, where we're starting to see a focus on seed traits that are controlling for, you know, sort of erratic things within the environment. You know, we have this, um, this one product called Duracade. What it does is it strengthens plant roots against bugs. And when we had these derechos that went through the Midwest, you know, pretty recently, and that was 100 mile an hour winds just knocking down things. And so we've seen this what was originally this sort of small idea around a, a specific thing, we thought it was sort of a cottage trade, is seeing widespread support. So I think you have this intersection of biotechnology, chemistry, agronomy, and digital tools, as I was saying earlier, kind of coming together in a way that can kind of really redefine what innovation means in being an input company. And do you see this this soil health initiative by Syngenta as distinct from, you know, the regenerative movement and carbon farming? Because my understanding is you all have kind of stayed on the sidelines a little bit from that. Well, first of all, for the record, we're pretty excited about anything that gets farmers paid for, you know, things like minimizing tillage. And we, we think these are all the right things for them. We think that in many cases, they'll get better outcomes with those things. I think the problem you have is the sort of quirks of the carbon market. So this issue around additionality means that if you're a farmer that has been no-tilling and planting cover crops for 10 years, you don't get to participate in the carbon credit market, whereas one that hasn't can. So we actually think that there's an opportunity for the new administration to sort of retool the rules so there's an even playing field so that farmers are getting you know, a fair share of benefit for doing things that help support the environment. We actually just closed about a 15,000 acre plot of land with a grower in Brazil near the Amazon rainforest just, just this week, actually. And what we're doing is targeting things like degraded pasture land. So we're taking degraded pasture land. So it's not really very valuable to the cattle farmer because it's been overgrazed. You can't do much with it. And as you know, within Brazil, you have all these soybean growers that are trying to find new land to grow, but they can't grow on this land because it, it really doesn't work. So what we see is we see an opportunity to use carbon credits as a way to collateralize the financial ability to bridge loan that land. It'll take three years to take degraded pasture land and convert it to being able to grow, let's say, $13 per, per bushel soybeans. 
So we're looking at how can we actually use the carbon markets, but also how you actually can use potentially private funding to really turn around the 500 million hectares, which is what 1.2 billion acres of degraded land on Earth. So we think there's a lot more opportunity to go after degraded farmland and turn it into productive land. And obviously, if you're in the Amazon, that also means less deforestation. So we view this as a much bigger idea than just, you know, how do I give growers, uh, you know, $20 to no-till? I mean, we think that's a, it's a much bigger idea than that. And we're really looking at how to put these different pieces together of agronomy, of the financial instruments that might be necessary to make this happen, as well as the trend towards ESG investing. And we think these three things can come together that can not only help growers get paid to do these things, but also can can help uh, solve sustainability issues and some of the climate change problems that we think agriculture can contribute to. A lot of what we've been talking about has been, you know, everything from digital tools to soil health. The end result, really, if you project out far enough, is using less inputs, right? So what does that mean for a company like Syngenta that has been built on selling inputs? Yeah, well, if you look at the last 50 years, it surprises a lot of people. The, the use of crop protection products, if you look at it in terms of gallons or volume, is actually down 90%. So this is not really necessarily a new thing. And so what's happened is over time is all types of innovation have come in and sort of replaced previous generations of innovation. As that has happened, it almost is predictably related to needing less inputs to be able to do that. If you think about since the 1950s, you're using a lot less fertilizer than you used to, and you're using 80, 90% less crop protection products, yet we've produced 150% more food on only 13% more land. So I think we're going to expect that trend to continue, but we definitely see that the trend will shift not just purely from research and formulation chemistry and computational biology, but it'll also start to play itself out in data science and computer science. So what we're trying to do is to take our innovation experience in chemistry and biology and marry it to agronomy and computer science. And I think that not only will it allow us to continue the trend towards less inputs, as we've been able to see over the last 50 years, but it'll also allow us to be able to understand where to put things and how. And I think it also opens up completely new innovations that we're not even thinking of, whether it's a different form factor. So we could think about, for example, a foam capability versus a liquid capability that could help with adhesion and things like that. So, you know, I think we're pretty optimistic that in the areas like a non-selective herbicide, where you're, you're most likely to see some volume reductions, that that's going to create new opportunities for innovation that we're pretty excited about. And we think that, you know, being one of the world's leading innovators, you know, in this space, we'll continue to be able to bring that innovation to the market. It seems to me on a lot of these digital tools, and for example, John Deere just recently came out with their latest sea and spray technology. It seems like the machinery and equipment manufacturers maybe are at a bit of an advantage in entering into this more digital space, you know, that being one example of sea and spray technology. Do you see, you know, input companies like Crop Protection, you know, Syngenta, et cetera, moving into more of the hardware because of that? You know, I think this is interesting because this is sort of the the challenge of ag in a lot of ways uh, is that we're so used to being in our own lanes and all this innovation is kind of happening in these pockets. In a lot of ways, this innovation you know, almost feels to me like if you remember the computer industry in the 1980s, right? We had the Commodore 64, the VIC-20, the IBM PC. You know, everybody sort of rushes out and tries to build these sort of walled gardens. But the truth is, no one player in ag has this whole thing figured out. Machinery companies don't understand agronomy well. 
you know, we're one of the largest input companies. And while we have a fertilizer business in parts of Asia, you know, we don't have a, a lot of fertilizer experience in the U.S. So, you know, we think there's companies like Nutrien and Land O'Lakes and Syngenta and Deer. And there's a lot of companies that need to come together if you want to provide this holistic solution. So we don't think it's this zero sum, I win, you lose. It's my view that the end game of ag tech is autonomous farming. And I think that's what almost everything seems to point to. At some point, just like you know, cars will drive themselves, at some point, farm machines will be able to conduct a lot of operations on their own. At some point, computational agronomy will reach a similar quality of decision making that an average agronomist can make today. So as that occurs, it will fundamentally open up whole new opportunities and how we manage sustainable farming in a different way, produce more food for a growing population, but do it in a way that really respects and works with the contours of the existing land. And that's not something that any one player in the value chain can do alone. We have to be thinking as an industry and working together and collaborating to really help our collective customers, which are farmers and the advisors they work with, but also you know, really trying to help feed the growing planet. Has Syngenta came out with anything more on the automation side or kind of ventured into that space much? No, we really haven't focused on machinery. I mean, that's not our, our sweet spot, right? What we're experts in is computational biology, computational chemistry. We're experts at innovation, particularly around uh, plant biology. And so what we really try to focus on is where we think we can bring that expertise to the table. Now, we think that we can work with them. We are actually talking to several of the machinery companies as some of our competitors. I mean, we see the synergies between, if you think about computational agronomy as almost being the brains and the autonomous machine being the arms and legs, I think this will actually come together that way. And, and that's going to require different members of the value chain really having to work together. So I don't think we're going to try to do everything ourselves. And, and I don't think others should try to do everything themselves either. And if you're talking to, you know, Syngenta shareholders and they say, okay, well, we're noticing this trend of, you know, less and less inputs, why should we not be concerned? You know, from an investor standpoint, why is this a good space to be in? Yeah, I mean, I would come back to, to what I've said earlier, which was if you look at the last 50 years, I mean, the, the use of at least crop protection inputs is down 90% plus. So I think this is a trend that isn't going to change. We have no reason to believe that it's going to change. And I think that it's like anything with innovation, you kind of really look at all the things that could go wrong with it. And instead of looking at all the ways that you can be able to benefit from it. And I think when you're a company that is really grounded in innovation, right? And, and I'm talking to you here from Basel, Switzerland, which is where a predecessor company of Syngenta was founded in the 1700s. You know, this is a company that has a long history of providing really, really good quality products to customers, being very, very customer focused, continuing to deliver a drumbeat of innovation. I think just the use of digital technology is just another axis of innovation with which we view it. And so whether that's you know, new breakthroughs in biotech through CRISPR, which is something we're looking on, we've just acquired a biologics business. We think biologics will play an increasingly important role. So I think Syngenta is really one of these companies that is not sort of looking backwards. It's really looking forwards at how it can continue to be a powerhouse of innovation. And there's no question that the digital technology, computer science, data science, as well as natural science will be the key to unlocking a lot of that. 
And with the rise of digital tools, does that change the distribution models at all? You know, I mean, you'd mentioned retailers earlier. Obviously, they're going to continue to play an important part in the future of agriculture. But I'm just curious if, you know, the digitization of agriculture, if we can call it that, changes those distribution models. Yeah, well, I think it's if you go around the world, you have very, very different different distribution models. I mean, the U.S. is is a bit unique in the sense that it is as consolidated as it is. It is not that way in the EU. It's not that way in Latin America, and it's definitely not that way in Asia. So I think it will be you know slightly different in different places. You know, our view on the U.S. is um, you know farmers have really good relationships with trusted advisors they work with, and that's who Syngenta wants to work with. So if we have capabilities and software and tools that we think are helpful to the growers and the people who advise them, you know, we're going to make them available to whomever it is that can get benefit from them. And as you look around the world, you know, you just mentioned kind of distribution, but on the flip side, on sort of adoption of digital tools, I imagine there's variability. Are there any spots that are just like, you know, very quick adopters of digital tools versus others? I mean, I think the U.S. for sure, I mean, the U.S. grower is the most mature, the most advanced, and the most productive in the world. I think they are very willing to try new technology. I would put a place like Brazil and Argentina maybe in second place there. And then I think when you get outside of, of that market, you kind of have very different issues driving it. So in Europe, there's a lot of pressure on the use of, uh, of products that they've had for a long time. I mean, they're seeing products getting deregistered and, and they're, they're losing a lot of the freedom to operate. So what you know, we're trying to do is to help them navigate things like you know, residue limits and, and stuff like that. What's been really remarkable to watch is China. And while they're not necessarily growers, I mean, Syngenta actually is an advisor to growers in China. So we have a retail model, we have a fertilizer model, we actually sell equipment in China. And it's just amazing just to watch where they've come from and where they've gone to. We've got right now um, hundreds of stores that are actually out there helping small village growers be able to produce not only you know higher quality food, but do it in a more sustainable way. I mean, China has some of the most degraded farmland in the world. So being able to turn that around has been, been really interesting to see. So I think the technology adoption you know has less to do with the geography and the culture and sort of more to do with whether or not you have a product that can solve a real world need. Well, as you look to the future, you know, just on the digital side, what do you think is sort of the next breakthrough or next milestone that's going to expand digital agriculture? Yeah, I do think it's going to be in two places. One is going to be in the ability to predict recommend and prescribe specific interventions. I think this is an area that is somewhat underdeveloped. There is a, a lot of companies that have focused on sort of base level, you know, just put all your data in here and, you know, hopefully good things will come out of it. I, I think what really the next level of innovation is how you convert data into actually actionable information. So, you know, what should I do here? Why is this happening? What's likely to happen? And how do I intervene? I mean, these are the sorts of agronomic decisions that these tools really promise. And I think that's really where a lot of our R&D is being spent. So in this agenda digital world, a lot of our time and energy is being put into artificial intelligence, into deep learning, into computer vision, because these are the things that are ultimately going to take you from, you know, just looking backwards to tell you, you know, what your harvest map showed you to actually being able to start looking at specific details of what's actually going on in your field and how to help you figure out what to do next. So I think that's one area. And then I would also come back to soil health, and I think the agronomy around what goes on below the soil bed is still an under-researched area. So I think there's a lot of opportunities 
you think about carbon farming, I think it's actually deceivingly more interesting than just being able to get a carbon credit in a private market. Because a lot of the things that you have to do to be able to quantify carbon sequestration in soils can also unlock a ton of insights around the microbiome of the soil, around what the impact of some of the management practices, some of the inputs have had, what some of the genetic traits have had. And I think as we look to put all these things together, you know, the, the real goal here is not just to improve yield, I and mean, that's always something that will perennially be important, but also how do you start to grow for other things? And I think over time, we're going to see increased interest from food companies and consumers and retailers where they're going to be looking not just for, you know, is the food cost effective, but how is it grown? You know, what were the impacts to the environment? And, and I think this program, like I mentioned earlier, in the, the Amazon rainforest where, you know, we can turn around degraded land and actually turn it into productive arable land you know, are the kinds of innovations that consumers and investors would be really interested in. Thanks very much to Greg Myers for being on the show. Wow, we covered quite a bit of ground there. It's just great to get the perspective of someone who's really getting to see such a wide swath of this industry worldwide. Thanks again, Greg, for being on the show. One more reminder to fill out that listener survey. You all have already given me so many ideas for how to improve the show, and really, I plan to implement several of them. You'll have to give me some time, though, and be patient with me. I just launched two client podcasts. More details on those coming later. And I've got a new baby coming next month, so it's going to take me some time. But just know that I do plan to put your feedback into action. In fact, I can't wait to do so, but you might have to be patient with me. Thanks again for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 